All right, well, good morning. We are in the middle of a series on the book of John, um, and we've been talking about the book of John really has been given to us, so as we read it, as we study it, we would really see Jesus for who he is, that, that by seeing him, then we would have life and have life abundant. And so that's really our goal today as we, as we look through the book of John, is really that we would see Jesus and that we would find life in him and that he would be everything that we desire. And so I want to, if you have your Bibles, you can open in chapter 9. We're going to pick up reading today. Uh, today there. Um, but just as you get there, just a quick reminder, John doesn't write his book in like chronological order. Rather, he writes it more thematically along the way. And so chapter 9 really builds off of the themes in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and kind of really adds some more detail um, to Jesus' time in Jerusalem and his interaction with the Jewish leaders. And so now chapter 9, um, we're going to see him actually um, heal a blind man. But if you go back to chapter 8, really one of the big themes in chapter 8 that Josh talked about last week was this idea that Jesus is the light of the world. And now in chapter 9, we're going to see him heal a blind man, which is really what light does. It allows us to see. It allows us to to walk freely, to to not stumble along a path. It exposes the things around us. It reveals um, them for what they truly are. And so John is organizing the book this way to really connect the dots for us. He's connecting the dots from light of the world to now the light of the action who actually heals, heals the blind. And so he's telling us, really, John's telling us there's, there's a larger picture that's going on here. There's a larger view to look out. It's not just about a man seeing again. It's not just about seeing the light of a world. But it's, it's that seeing the light of the world allows us not just, just to see physically, but to see spiritually. That the, the light of Jesus that, he, that Jesus is talking about, that he's offering, is one that opens our hearts, opens our souls, opens our, uh, our minds to the truth that he is actually life. That he is actually life. A life that's in our light that exposes and that illuminates and interprets all the things around us and anything that we would experience in life. And so that's where we're going today. So I want to jump into the story. And so what we find in the story is Jesus and his disciples are walking around and they come across a blind man. And so chapter 9 verse 1 says this. And as he passed by, he saw a, bland, a bl- man. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So let me just stop for just a second here, because it may not be as explicit. Um, but what I, what's evident here, especially as you read on in the story, is that this, is, this man is someone that the disciples recognized. Yeah, I think it's similar to, to us. If you travel around, you live here in L.A., you, you see people that, that are homeless often, or people that are broken on the side of the road, or people that are, are in, outside in front of your workplace, or where you shop, or where there's... And often we see very similar people. I see the I see same, same people often in the same place. This past week, Victoria and I were coming out of the Target parking lot, and right there near the Burger King, there was a woman with her child, and she, was, she had a little sign asking for help. And I've seen her many, many times over the past few years. And sometimes we've helped her. We often try to keep granola bars or some kind of snack in, in the car that we hand out to people, or if I have some change or some money, I'll, I'll give them some. Sometimes we help, sometimes we don't, and sometimes, it, but this, this, this started a conversation between Victoria and I about what was going on in this woman's life and, and how, how we serve her, and, and so it's kind of sparked this conversation. And I think this is, as we see here, this is something that, that we see the disciples recognize this man. They knew something about his story. They knew that he was blind from birth. 
Maybe they had talked to him before. Maybe they had given him a few coins. We're not sure. Maybe, maybe they'd seen him sitting there for years upon years and years as they've come into the temple. It's possible that this man was the same age as the disciples. Maybe they, when they were, when they were, when they were young and they were walking into the temple with their parents, they were holding their parents' hands and they saw this, this man who was then a little boy begging for food and money. They, maybe they had this conversation and they asked their parents about, about, Mommy, why, mommy, daddy, why is he blind? What's, what's going on in his life? And most likely they got some type of answer along the way in the story, wherever they interacted with this man, that they got the answer that it was because of his sin that he was blind. Some, something, something, a part of his blindness was related to sin. Now this is, this is a, this was a common theme that was spoken into their culture that really hardship was caused by sin. Now, we may not like go there first thing, like as soon as we see someone and we say, oh, well, they're, they're sinning, but that, that's why they're like that. That's why they're sick or that's why they're blind or that's why they are. But I think that actually subtly this is actually part of our culture as, for, as well, that hardship um, equals sin and judgment. I think oftentimes we're very transactional with God. If, if this happens to me, something else must have been wrong. God must be judging me for X, or, 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 or God must be judging them, or, or at minimum, God doesn't, God doesn't love me enough, or doesn't love someone else enough. We, we get kind of transactional, and many people inside the church and outside the church have these thoughts that, that if, if something bad is in my life, it's because I didn't live up to God's standards. Sometimes it's very subtle. Maybe it becomes, you know, I can't serve today or I can't go in and, and go to missional community tonight or I can't, I can't be around people because X is going on in my life. I, I, can't, I can't come up and teach you because Jess and I are fighting today. Or we can't lead over here because, because I had this interaction, this poor interaction with my daughter or with someone else in life. I think oftentimes there's this, this subtle this picture of God that we have of God just kind of sitting up there waiting for someone to get out of line so he can just squash them. So he can just give them some kind of judgment in their life. And I want to tell you, that's really a lie. That's really a lie. That's not the true full picture of who God is. Of, of He's just waiting to squash someone. That's not a true picture of the God of the Bible. God is not looking for perfect people to bless. That's not what he's looking for. God is looking for broken people who see their need of him, who then he can then demonstrate and show grace and love to them. And so I want to take, I want to see that as we go into verse 3. As verse 3, take a look, because this is how Jesus actually interacts and demonstrates this in the story. In in verse 3, he says this, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must the work of We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus turns this question around and and, and in in many ways he he says um, the effect, the human causes of this blindness, the human causes of things are not the decisive explanation of what's going on here. Just the things that we see are not the decisive explanation. It says that it wasn't this man who sinned or his parents. His blindness was not based on human causes, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. There was, a, there was a purpose that God had for this. John Piper says it this way. He says, divine purposes are decisive reasons. Divine purposes are de- decisive reasons. Not human causes are the, are the 
decisive reasons. The idea is that, that the reason why humans are not really, or human causes are not the ultimate explanation for things is, is, is God is not a responder, but he's actually a planner. God doesn't just respond to things. He's actually planned it from the beginning of time. In other words, when God ordains that something happens, um, God is not really on the backside just responding to what, to, what hap- to, to, to what a human does. He's actually on the front end planning the purpose behind the human causes. The truth is that, that God being a sovereign planner is that, and he's not really a, a reactionary responder, really has, has really profound implications in, in all of life. What this means is that no matter what mess you're in or what pain you're in or the causes of that mess or the pain that's going on in your life, um, that's not the only decisive way to explain it. We don't just explain it by the things that that we can think about or think that we understand. What this means is that that God 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 has purpose in that. Yes, there are There are human causes. I'm not, I'm not denying that. There are, there are things that, that, that we do in our lives that actually have some consequences and have some results that, that play out in that. Um, and there may be things that we need to turn from and repent of and, and to turn from your life. But, and some hardship in your life may be related to sin. Maybe it relates to sin in your life or sin in the life of someone else or just sin because we live in a broken world. But those causes alone, those things in your life, are not the decisive determining factor in the meaning of the mess or the pain that's going on in your story. What's absolutely decisive is God's purpose in it. And so when Jesus says the purpose of his blindness is that the works of God might be displayed in him, he's saying he's really revealing the, the works of God has value that overweighs the years and years and years of blindness. Both for this man and for his parents. You think about that. Not, it wasn't just this man's struggle that, that he was blind, but his parents and, and all those who cared for him. And so Jesus is saying, all of those things, the value that, that God has for this outweighs all of that. That's a pretty heavy thought. That's a pretty thought, deepful thought. For Jesus, really, blindness from, from birth is sufficiently explained by saying, God didn't... God intended to display some type of glory through his blindness. In just a second, we'll see that Jesus actually does heal him, that the glory of God's power to heal this man is on display through this, through this story. But, but there's nothing to say that this man has to be healed, that it's only purposeful when something good happens in your life, when something good comes out of it, or when an illness is re- removed, or, or when you're healed from a sickness, or someone that you love is healed from a sickness. That, that's not how it always works. If you look at the story of Paul, oftentimes we see Paul crying out many, many times for this thorn in his flesh to be, remealed, be, be healed, to be removed. And Jesus says this in the Second Corinthians twelve nine. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Basically, I, I will put my power on display, not by healing you, but by sustaining you in the midst of this hard thing. So his power, in other words, his, his healing power can be in the works of, of what we see in John 9 by, by healing, but also in Second Corinthians we see by sustaining. So the common thread in both of these cases is really the glory of God, that the blindness of those around would see the the glory of God, and that that this man's blindness was for the glory of God, and that the thorn in the flesh uh, that Paul had was for the glory of God. They're both 
They're both for God's glory. They're both for God's glory. So suffering really can't have its ultimate meaning um, unless we're in relationship with God, unless we understand it through, through, through God. Now here's the deal. None of this is going to make sense. None of what I just said is going to make sense or be helpful or, or be relevant to you in your life unless God and himself and his works are your greatest treasure. See, in order to embrace this truth that, that we have value in the revealing works of God more than just the physical things that we can see in sight alone, that, really, that there's more value um, than all of life, God has to be the most valuable. If God isn't the most valuable, then, the th- then everything else is going to outweigh and we're going we're to weigh our, what we think about things based on that. And I know that, that many of you, as I know your stories, have, have sickness and have hurt in your story and sadness in your story, many hard things that you've walked through. And, and we get to mourn those things. We get to feel deep pain of loss. And that's real. And God, I want to tell you that God mourns that brokenness as well. God mourns the brokenness in your life. It's good news that, that if God grieves over your sin, then that frees us up to grieve as well. It frees us up to mourn as well. For many of us, um, the only way we, we've actually dealt with, with past pain um, in our lives is really to pretend that it, doesn't hap- that it didn't happen or to just kind of stuff it in the back of the closet. But I want to tell you, we have to grieve. We need to mourn. To simply say, this, this happened to me and it was terrible and it was really hard. You see, if you look at Jesus' story, you see Jesus in, in Lazarus, Jesus, one of Jesus' close friends, Lazarus, dies. You remember that part of Jesus' story? And he knew, if this is pretty amazing, Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but what does Jesus do? He weeps. Jesus mourns. He didn't gloss over the emotional brokenness and loss. He painfully mourns the brokenness of death, even though he knew what was on the other side. I want to say the truth is that you will never emotionally mature unless you learn to grieve properly. Unless you learn to grieve properly. And biblical grief is different than when we think about grief in, in, our, in, our, in our culture. Biblical grief is not about you. Biblical grief is not about you. The Psalms are full of examples of people experiencing pain and suffering and taking it to God and saying, this hurts, I don't understand it, but I know you're here. This hurts, but I know you're here. We need to acknowledge God's presence in the midst of pain. That God is always present and that sin grieves God, that pain grieves God. God knows what happened. God knows what happened in your story. God knows what happens in your life. He was there and it grieves him. And I, I know that from, from many of your stories as well that, that you understand the depth of this. I've seen the evidence of you believing God's purpose and that his love is greater than the hard things in your life. And can I want to remind you, that is the grace of God. That is grace of God that you would see that, that we would get to experience that, and that that as we watch and as we walk through life with with many different people and as they experience hard things, that's the grace of God that we get to see Him in the midst of those things. 
Psalm 63 says it this way. It says, your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Being loved by God, being with God now and for all eternity is better than having physical eyes. It's better than than anything else we could desire in our life. It's even better than being alive. That God's love for you and for me is better. The thing that happened to you or the physical ailment that you have or or that someone else that you have that, that you love, that's not good. But God is good. And he can accomplish good things through the brokenness and through sin done to us or by us or for us. God is able to rewrite the story, as it were. God is able to flip the script, if you want to say it that way. And the good news is that since God intends it for his good purposes, the very effects of sin, the very effects of pain can change, can change in your life. That's really the definition of redemption. That's really the definition of redemption, where God buys back our pain, buys back our sin, buys back our sorrow, and uses it for his good. The problem is that, that often when we have our own concept of what it should look like on the other side, of what the healing should be, what it should look like. And some of us who are facing tough circumstances right now may even be saying to God, if you get me out of this, or if you change this, then I will worship you. Then I will obey you. Then I will do what you ask. But really, true worship in the midst of suffering says, God, you are good. I don't understand. I don't like what's happening. But I need you, and I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to acknowledge that you are good in the midst of this pain because I know that I can trust you. That's what true worship looks like. And really, the truth is, if we don't believe that, then saying that God is wise and that he has good purposes in all our loss and all our hurts is not going to be much comfort. Just saying it like some mantra or, 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 some, or just telling somebody that will just be empty words. It'll be something else that we'll try to bear up under and try to, to hold the weight of. But if you do believe this, if God actually changes your heart by his grace to actually believe the truth of these things, then not only will God's purposes comfort us and strengthen us, but they will sustain us in the midst of the hard time. It'll, it'll enable us to patiently wait. It'll enable us to be gentle with others as they're experiencing and as they're going through hard things in their life. And really, it'll point us and them to worship Jesus as well. Which is really what this story is really all about. It's about worship. Really, worship, um, worshiping God in the midst of hard things. We're going go to on, go on to verse 6. And we'll see that Jesus reveals God's purpose and in, in pain of this. Verse 6. We're going to see also, too, um, this man is, is going to kind of go on a journey of worship along the story. So verse 6 is this. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Salem, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And as you read on the story, what's going to happen from here on is, we don't have time to read all of it, is the man's going to have five conversations. It's going to have five conversations that play out after this physical healing. 
And step by step, this blind man's sight of who Jesus is will become clearer and clearer and clearer. And his boldness will become stronger and stronger and stronger till we really reach the climax of verse 38 with him worshiping Jesus. And I want to look at each one of these conversations briefly. um, But before I do that, I want to talk about mud. Right? This first thing of mud. Because I think it's important. I think there's there's a few important things that happen in this healing. So why is mud important? I think one, the first reason is this. Jesus never does anything without a purpose behind it. So why does he use mud? What's significant about mud? What, what, what is he telling us with this mud? Well, what's not, what maybe not be so obvious to us, but would have been, would have been to those in that culture who are watching and hearing the story and are reading about it in the book of John here, is that, that Jesus did this, um, really used this mud was really against the Pharisees and their understanding of the law to do it on the Sabbath. Jesus purposely unleashes a controversy here by using mud. Not for controversy's sake, but to say that, that, that he is the light of the world. That his light would be shown, resulting really in exposing the sin and the things that the Pharisees and those uh, the religious leaders of that day worshipped. So how do we know that? Verse 14, I'm going to get there. Verse 14 says this, Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. And we see that, if you go on in the story, that they're, they're not happy about this happening on the Sabbath. This mud making is explicitly connected with the Sabbath and the Pharisees. And when we look at their reaction um, in a minute, it's obvious to them that this was a direct attack on their beliefs. Now, to understand this further, I think we need to understand that the word mud here, or clay, is also the same word that's used for dough. The same word that's used for dough. And so one of the, one of the extra laws that the Pharisees had developed along the way, um, with the command not to work on the Sabbath, was related to the kneading of dough. You weren't, you weren't allowed to, to make bread, or to knead bread together, or knead dough together on the Sabbath. And so this use of mud and forming it and putting it into this man's eyes, Jesus had broken the law of kneading dough. And Jesus is making a significant statement here. He's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who defines the Sabbath. He's also showing the point of the Sabbath, really, rest is actually for healing. That the point of, of, of why we rest is for healing. And so Jesus, the point of the Sabbath rest is that, that for humans we were, we were helpless and God creates and he sustains and God heals that we don't. He's, he's the one that does that, not us. This is really, a, a, as well, I said this earlier, that this kind of builds off of the other chapters. This is a flashback to chapter 6 and Jesus being the bread of life. Boldly he's proclaiming as he's kneading together this mud, kneading together the dough, that he is the dough, he's the one that kneads the dough of the bread of life. He's the one that sustains, that he's the one that heals, and that rest is found in me. That's what he's saying on the Sabbath. And so Jesus purposefully picks the perfect day to find a broken man and heal him and to give him and his parents rest from all of the struggles and from all of the blindness, which really is what the Sabbath rest is for, and healing. And so God brings blessing and brokenness into weary humans on the Sabbath. God, in some sense, refuels his people, as it were, with the bread of life in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, in our bodies. 
So I think there's purposeful piece of this mud here. And I think there's another thing going on is Jesus is teaching us with the use of mud is that he's reminding us that his ways are above our ways. He often, as you look through scripture, you look through the Bible, Jesus often uses people, he uses strange circumstances, he uses things outside to, to accomplish his work. Jesus usually, always uses something else to accomplish his work. God always does that. Jesus could have simply just spoken and this man's eyes would have been healed. He could have just said, see, and the man would have been, his eyes would have been open. He's done that before. He spoke and people were healed. And as you look through most of the stories in the Bible, in the midst of God doing something amazing, he usually brings it to fruition through the things that he's actually created. Proverbs uh, 21.31 says it this way. The horse was made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Basically, God doesn't need the horse, but he's going to use the horse to bring about his purposes. As you think about this idea, God using things outside of himself and the things actually using things he created to accomplish his purposes, what are some things you can think of where God uses physical things in the world to produce something else? What do you think? If this is, if you're new with us, you're allowed to speak when I ask a question. So what are some things you think about where, where God uses physical things in the world to produce something else? Okay, he uses the dust of the ground to, to, to make Adam in the very beginning. Yeah, good. Where else? Okay, uses the rock to, to produce water. Okay, yeah, good. What else? It doesn't have to be in the story either. It can be something that you see right now every day. Babies. Babies, for sure, right? God uses sex to produce life, to produce kids, to produce more humans. Yep, God could just like make them appear, but he doesn't. He uses something physical to produce something else. Yeah, good. What else? Just like seeds transforming into food. Yeah, he uses, he uses seeds, trees, plants to produce food, which sustain life, to give off air so that we can breathe, all those things. He uses those things to produce something else we need. Yeah, good. What else? He works through us in the church. Okay. Yeah, he uses the means of people to remind people of who he is, to image him, to, to care for people, to, to comfort them, to, to point them to Jesus. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, we see all the physical things of the, the sun to give us heat and the moon to kind of change the ocean things around and the gravity to keep us from floating out to space. Like all of those things, God's using the means of those things to sustain life and to produce life and to provide for us. Yeah, John. Yeah, he uses the tones of our voices and the tones of instruments that are created so that people can create beautiful worship for him. Yeah, good. What else? I want to camp out here for just a minute because I want you to start to see that everything in the world, God has a purpose to use it for his glory so that we would then see him in the midst of it. 
That's really what we're doing as we're thinking about these things. Uh, and maybe we don't have to camp out there anymore because I just said it. But uh, I, I want to remind us that, that God does not despise the physical world. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. And so does the rest of all creation, if we have eyes to see him in the midst of it. There are so many things in this world, when you get down to the bottom of it, like, we just don't understand how they work. Like, people way smarter than than me, way smarter than probably you, Um, I know you're a lot smarter than me, many of you, but we get down to the bottom of things and like, yeah, this medicine works for this healing, but we really don't know why, it just like, it changes something and... If you take penicillin, you get better. Like, right, we don't really know in many ways. And the answer, when we actually come down to it, is it actually must be God using the things that were created for his purposes. And I want to remind us that he wants us to see him in the midst of all of creation so that we would then worship him for all the things that he's made and all the things that he's done. If our eyes are open to see that the final explanation is God, then God using mud or God using medicine or God using food or trees um, to, will draw our hearts to see that there's purpose in the pictures and really the depth of God and what he's doing. And so this man here is healed by the use of mud. And then um, the next 35 verses, really, we see um, people trying to make sense of this healing. They're saying... They, they try, to, try to make sense of what happened here. So I, we don't have time to read all of it, but I want to go back and highlight just a few things. Um, and, and what we kind of see as this man takes a journey in understanding and seeing God in the midst of these things. So the first people that come into the story to talk to this man are the beggar's neighbors. And they're, they're in verses 8 through 12. And we find them basically arguing amongst themselves and arguing with this man whether or not he was actually the blind beggar. They're like, are you sure it's you? Are you sure that it's not someone else? They're arguing amongst themselves. They're like, no, that can't be. That can't be him. That can't be him. Are you, are, are you sure it's you? I think often when God changes us or those around us, those that are closest to us, often have the hardest time believing it. It can't be you. There's no way that you changed. You always interact this way. Why are you acting this way now? What's, what's your motive behind it? We doubt often that God can change people. We doubt that change can actually take place. And the truth is, when we doubt change in the lives of others or in our own lives, we're basically saying, God, you are not powerful enough to fix this problem. You're not powerful enough to change people. And that's really living in unbelief of who God truly is. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And this is what the neighbors are living in. So they question him and they asked him and, and he insists that he is the man who was blind. In verse 10, they asked him this question, basically, so how did it happen? In verse 10, they said this. They said, how does it happen? In verse 11, he says, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. So they asked him how he got, how he started to see. And he says, the man named Jesus or called Jesus um, opened my eyes. At this point, he simply calls him the man. 
Not like the man, like the good man, but just like he's some man. He knows his name is Jesus, but he simply calls him the man. Now keep track of this and watch his progression because God's going to heal his spiritual blindness as he has these interactions over and over and over again. The second conversation we see is in verse um, 13 through 17 between really the beggar and the Pharisees. And they, they asked him the same question. How did he receive sight? And he tells them, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud, put it in his eyes, and when he went and washed it off, he was healed. And so he sends them, which is, when he tells them this, it kind of sends the, the Pharisees in this, this controversy, and they start fighting over who Jesus is with one another. They, they fight over the, this idea that, that Jesus is either a sinner because he healed on, on, on the Sabbath, or he's holy because he has the power to heal. And so they're going back and forth and they can't figure out where to settle on this. And they say, well, why don't we just go ask him? Let's go ask the guy that was healed. And so they do that and they come back and they, and they say this in verse 17. And he, said, he answers, they say, what, what, who do you think he is? And he answers them in verse 17. He says, he's a prophet. So he moves from him just being the man with his neighbors, just some ordinary guy, to now someone sent by God. Jesus is the prophet. Well, the Pharisees don't like that answer either. And so they say, well, let's go get the beggar's parents. Let's, let's confirm that, that this is actually the guy. Let's, let's confirm it wasn't a hoax. And so this third conversation we see is in 18 through 23 between the Pharisees and this man's parents. And they ask in verse 19, is he your son? Was he born blind? And how does he see now? And so he, they answer, they said, yep, this was our son. He was born blind. We've known him since he came out. Basically, we don't know how he's, and we don't know how he was healed. And there's some, there's some commentary that John adds here. It says that out of fear, they say this. Right? They're, they're really out of fear of their own standing, of their own the position within the culture. They, they say, we don't know. You should ask him. Now, I think John adds this not to like, throw the parents under the bus, not to be hard on the parents, but to highlight really the son's courage and his boldness in speaking about who Jesus is in contrast with the blindness of the Pharisees. In verse 24, the Pharisees bring the beggar back in after they talk to the parents and they say this to him, um, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Basically, they asked this guy who's been healed to join them in their assessment that Jesus is a sinner. And so that they say, do that, join us in this assessment that Jesus is a sinner or else we're going to excommunicate you from the synagogue. Basically, we're going to remove you from the center of life in all of community. And in verse 25, this is what he says. He says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This man has a powerful testimony in his life now. A testimony, a story of God's power. And can I say, by the way, your story is just as powerful. People can't dispute God changing your life. It's a story that God gave to you. So by the time we get to verse 27 with this man, we see him growing in really the truth about who Jesus is. And and we start to see more of the blindness of the Pharisees. And he kind of gets to the point in 27 where, where he's now boldly trying to expose the Pharisees' blindness. He says this in 27. He answered them, I've already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you also want to become his disciples? So he kind of just like gives them a smackdown, and and they're they this kind of doesn't make them very happy. And in verse twenty twenty eight, um, and they revile him and saying, "You are his disciple, but we are a disciple of Moses." We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. If you remember, this is actually a flashback to chapter 5 and their interaction with Jesus. And we start to actually see who's actually blind in this story. Because Jesus had said to them in John five forty six, if you believe in Moses, you believe in me. That's what, because Moses actually wrote of Jesus. That's what he says. So we not only see that there that they're blindness, but this, the beggar is growing in his sight of Jesus. In verse 30, he goes on and says, why, this is, why is this amazing thing? Why do you not know where he comes from? And yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone worships, is a worshiper of God, and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were, from, were not from God, he could do nothing. So he boldly proclaims the truth of God and the purpose behind his brokenness. And behind him now seeing, behind him receiving sight, that God had a purpose in revealing who Jesus is. And the Pharisees can't handle this. They don't like it. They, they, and they basically make good on their threat and they cast him out with contempt. In verse 34 it says, they say, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. They throw him out of the synagogue. They throw him out of community, really. Which brings us to the last conversation in verse 35 through 38, which is really between Jesus and the beggar. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Can you notice that Jesus initiates this conversation? The man had been threatened. He'd been cast out of basically all of his lifelong religious community, all of basically of all of life and community back then. And Jesus seeks him and he finds him and he, he looks for him, he finds him. Can I say this? This is just a little spoiler alert for next week. But there's no accident that this chapter right after this where it comes and Jesus is, is called the shepherd who gathers his sheep. The one who goes and comes and finds and gathers. That's for next week. But anyway, um, verse 36, he answered and he says, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. That's the last thing we see or hear of this man. His eyes were opened. And he worshipped Jesus. That's the point of the story, that Jesus is to be worshipped. The man was blind, he was healed, and then he called Jesus the man. He went from being the man to being a prophet. And then he defends him at a huge risk of his own life. And then he falls down and he worships. And that's why Jesus came into the world. Because he's seeking worshippers. He's looking for worshippers. If you go back to verse 1, I want you to see this because Jesus is actually the one who starts this conversation. Jesus is the one who sees, who pursues, and restores sight. In verse 1 it says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It says, As Jesus passed by, 
He saw him. It wasn't the disciples that pointed him out. We don't see them until verse 2. It's Jesus who sees him. It does, the story doesn't begin with the disciples asking some questions or disciples seeing the blind man or, or something else. The story begins with Jesus seeing this man. As he passed by, he saw the man blind from birth. The disciples are engaged in the story because Jesus is actually engaged with this man. Jesus purposefully sought out this rejected blind man, this nobody, this beggar on the side of the road, in order to turn him into a worshiper. Can I tell you, that is really good news because that's the same thing that Jesus is still doing today. That he's seeking people out. He's seeking you out. He's seeking me out. He's seeking those that we love out so that he would turn us into worshipers. That he's using all the things of, of the world, all the stories of your life, all the things that, we could, that are around us to open our eyes wider and wider and wider to see his glory bigger and bigger and bigger so that we would turn into bold worshipers of God. And I tell you that Jesus sees you. He sees all the things that are going on in your story. And Jesus is passionately pursuing you and calling you and desiring to show you that he loves you so that you would no longer walk in your blindness, but that you would see him and that you would fall on your face and that you would worship him in all things just the same way that this blind beggar does. Can I say that's really good news? That's really good news. That's an amazing story of grace. It's an amazing story of love. And that is the God of Scripture who continues to pursue the brokenness, to continues to pursue those that are cast to the side and calls them into his family and turns them into worshipers. I'm going to pray and we're going to go to communion and really that's what we're going to celebrate. Father, thank you that you love us so deeply that you would pursue us, that you would spend your time and energy calling us into your family, that you would pour out your own blood and your own body, that you would would break yourself so that the broken could have sight and once again see you. Lord, we thank you that you are the bread of life, that you are the light of this world. Lord, I thank you that now, because you have restored our sight, we get to to live that same way. We get to pursue the broken in our world. We get to pursue those that need to see you for the first time or those that need to see you again and again and again. Lord, we... We desperately need you to open our eyes to see you more and more. Lord, I pray that through your spirit you would reveal to us how you're working in even the minute details of all of life. And that that would turn to to greater and greater worship. Father, I thank you that we get to, to see this story and we get to talk about these things today. And pray that you would continue to call us to worship as we head to communion. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.